Welcome to episode three of Unhallowed. I'm your host, Patrick McFarlane, joined by my co-host, Lizzie McFarlane. Good evening, everybody. And the show notes for this episode may be found on our website at unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash three for the episode number, episode three. Correspondingly, this is also part two of the Castle of Otranto, our coverage of it at least. And this is the final part covering i think we left off somewhere in in chapter three so we'll be covering chapter three four and five and we're really looking forward to it we hope you enjoyed the first episode and uh where did we leave off last episode well first you mansplained to me the author's name and i was wrong and you were wrong i want to point that out i mansplained it (laughs) no but i um I suppose I was correct saying Walpole, so that's why I always feel like saying Walpole because well, that's his name. I've I've bungled pronunciation so far on this podcast. Yep, par for the course. Par for the course. All right, so I think some of the last things that we were talking about was when Theodore and Isabella met in the cave. A little bit after this, they are you know they have a discussion. And he tells her that he will um, protect her from everyone that is out to find her, which is all of Manfred's men. And also the knights are looking for her. There's some pretty romantic language when Theodore first meets Isabella. When they're in the basement Mm -hmm. of the castle? Yeah. Well, there first, but also when he sees her again in the caves. Yes. It's some of the uh, dialogue with Theodore and his love interests, which would be Isabella and Matilda, is quite beautiful um, and very over the top. Uh, I actually, I in the last episode, I we ended sort of talking about how I was reminded a little bit of the soap opera aspects of this um, work, and it definitely has that soap opera quality with betrayal and twists and, you know, a father coming out of nowhere and death and lots of romance. So there is a soap opera storyline kind of thing to it. I would say. Well, there's a lot of these dramatic twists. And one thing I wanted to highlight, too, in this episode was the dead hand of the past coming back. The sins of the father revisited on the sons or the children. Mm. Those are some things that we can explore. Another thought that I had was this idea of Theodore keeps meeting Isabel in these feminine spaces like a cave being a feminine space. Oh. Yeah. And the basement with a trap door. Yep. And and some of these gothic aspects of 
It, it's just dripping with it. I mean, ew. Not to get all gross or anything, <laughs> but you you know, there there she's Isabel's going through the the these cloisters and going through the the dark the dark space underneath the castle and the wind is blowing her candle out and there's these moonbeams that are revealing secret passageways and they meet in the cave and there's giant suits of armor that are traipsing around it's just interesting so i I, think oh you were gonna say well i was gonna say so theodore meets isabel he professes his love to her no doesn't he no, he pledges himself to protect her. Yeah, he he pledges his love to Matilda. When he meets Isabella? Yeah, in the he cave? talks about how much he loves Matilda. Oh, but then doesn't he pledge himself to Isabella to well, protect her? To protect her. Yeah. And this is a huge reveal at this point because not only does Isabella find that Theodore loves Matilda, but also one of the knights discovers them. Theodore goes into attack and quickly mortally wounds the knight. And this is like the head knight of the trio that came to the castle. And as he takes his helmet off and he's bleeding, they find out that the man is actually, oh gosh. He's Isabella's father. It's Isabella's dad. and Frederick, right? Frederick? Yeah. I don't know. It's an F name. And so he comes and, uh, you know, he's sitting there bleeding and they take him, you know, Theodore feels terribly. They take him back to the castle and they all gather together in the room with him. So Hippolyta, Isabella and Matilda and then Manfred comes in and Father Jerome and everybody and all the characters are all together. Well, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, just kidding. Frederick wasn't mortally wounded. Well, I think he he was, but he kind of came back or I don't think he was like magically healed or it's anything. Like days of our lives. <laughs> like I was sands in a coma. through the hourglass. I was in a coma, but now I'm totally fine and and during this part it's By the way, I'm horny for your daughter. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden he decides that he is like obsessed with Matilda too. And so it's just, there's a lot of, I, I found myself thinking about the love triangle of, um, uh, in Twilight <laughs> during this a little bit, just with the whole, you know, the girl and the two boys, Bella and the vampire and the werewolf and just how sort of this is like a reverse with Theodore being the Bella character and then the two girls finding that they both love him and then basically having like a truce. But it's a really, I think it's a sweet moment where uh, Matilda and another one of those sweet, like feminine moments where it's just them together and they have a conversation basically saying that um, they still love each other, even though that, and their friendship is the most important thing, even though that they both love Theodore. So how wholesome! I don't know. It's cute. I like it. I would. I don't know. I just think it's nice. I found myself thinking a lot about the 
the story in the way that even though it seems really f- like it, it seems like it goes really fast once you're getting to the end. Well, I was looking at this quote here because we were talking when the scene in the cave happens in these feminine spaces. There's it, it made me think of a quote from the introduction of this Oxford companion or the Cambridge companion to gothic fiction where it puts it in no uncertain terms because this the whole daughter swap situation. There's a great deal of like incest that comes to play here too. This idea of forbidden relationships and how Manfred all of a sudden lusts after his would-be daughter-in-law. That's well, also that he raised as from like her birth, basically. Right. Well, and the fact that he discovers that Hippolyta is related to him in some schemy kind of way. But it, it's not in medieval times, it wasn't too unusual for families to interbreed. No, actually, they preferred it because it kept the blood pure. And a lot of royalty has aspects of physical or mental health issues or even deformity because of marrying close to your bloodline. And uh, I'm so glad that that's not super common anymore because that's so, I don't know, just growing up with somebody that's that close to you and then you're expected to marry them. It's just oh, so awkward. Here, Here's a passage um, talking about these in-between spaces to bring some gothic element into it, this idea of the in-between spaces. But the book has to say... Even as early as the castle of Otranto and certainly in Walpole, Walpole. Thanks. Walpole's gothic play, The Mysterious Mother. Women are the figures most fearfully trapped between contradictory pressures and impulses. It is Otranto's Isabella who first finds herself in what has since become the most classic gothic circumstance. Caught in a, quote, labyrinth of darkness full of, quote, cloisters, underground and anxiously hesitant about what course to take there, fearing the pursuit of a domineering and lascivious patriarch who wants to use her womb as a repository for seed that may help him preserve his property and wealth on the one hand, yet worried that fleeing in an opposite direction, she is still, quote, within reach of somebody male she she knew not whom. It's just interesting the way that the author chooses to <laughs> phrase her as being a repository for Manfred's seed. Ugh. Yeah. Uncomfortable episode. Yeah, this is going a way that I wasn't expecting. Um. <laughs> it's it's pretty, it, I, but it's prominent. It's pretty prominent in the story. It's all kind of related along this. I, I guess it's underlying the uncomfortability of the circumstance is that right. there's such a rapey vibe here. Well, isn't that part of the reason why she ran? I guess I didn't think about the physicality of it that she runs from him when he first approaches her about this, like he's going to attack her. And, you know, and then he sends all these men after her and he tries to lock her up in a room. I mean, I guess it is a lot about force and just all of this deciding on, on what's going to happen to these to these women is so sad and it, I think it's even in the same scene that I referred to earlier where the two girls 
speak about their their love and their friendship for each other, um, Hippolyta comes in and they have a, a moment of, you know, reconnecting. And then Matilda is like, you know, I love you like a mother, Hippolyta, and I have to tell you what Manfred is planning. And, and or Isabella says that, you know, I love you like a mother because obviously Hippolyta is Matilda's mother. But Isabella's saying <laughs> to Hippolyta uh, that she loves her like a mother and that she raised her and she has to tell her Manfred's evil plan and Hippolyta is basically like stop like I don't even want to hear it like they are uh, the men in charge of us there are our husbands and masters and I have to trust that they're good men and that they're going to do what's right and it's just so it, it's just so sad especially because they're so like they're so nice and they just do you know where I'm, do you know where I'm, do you know where I'm trying to go yeah Anyway, but... Well, when does this scene occur? When is it right after they bargain for each other's daughter? Or is it earlier? It's sort of happening concurrently in mm. the story. But it's kind of like right after. And they're talking about how they're going to basically marry each other's daughters. And they're all going to get what they want. And Manfred is kind of banking that... This other guy is going to just sort of forget that the whole reason why the knight and his men came in the first place was to save Isabella from where she was and to to take her back and to, you know, save her from this life is where she was living, even though she was a princess. And how does Frederick find out that Isabella is in dire straits? Does Jerome send out emissaries? He actually, it's it has to do with that whole hand of the past thing that we were talking about. He actually um, has a vision. And a uh, when he's in the Holy Land, he has a vision where he goes and finds the sword. And there's a passage written on the sword. And it inspires him to go save his daughter. Oh, don't they dig up this giant sword that they find in the desert? Yeah. It, it also, it adds to kind of the absurdity of the whole situation. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Yep. So that's why he comes in into, so he brings his knights and all of his men and everything to the castle and confronts Manfred and says, you know, you are not the, the true heir to this principality. Right, because it was the great or excuse me it was the grandfather of manfred who usurped the royalty back a generation or well, two he ago was, i think it was alfonso that um he ended up i think manfred's ancestor was a servant to alfonso and oh, so he gives him the power because there's nobody else I, but it ends up that theodore's actually Alfonso's heir and edging into the next part of the story I guess it happens around the same time too Manfred comes in and he sees when they're all gathered together in that room and he sees Theodore there in the suit of armor and he believes him to be a ghost 
the ghost of Alfonso. And he's like, it's a specter. And he said, don't you all see him? And they're like, what are you talking about? It's just Theodore. He's here. We all see him. (laughs) He's just a real dude. It's the young peasant that you were upset at before, which makes me think, how different did this guy look? But he bears this resemblance to Alfonso. They reference a couple times how Matilda's like in love with this portrait, which kind of made me like think and reflect a little bit on um, the portrait of Dorian Gray slightly, even though it's not a very similar story at all. I, I think, though, that in some way it is similar, and I haven't read it in quite some time, but isn't it the the portrait of Dorian? And we'll pro- we'll cover this for sure on the show eventually. But isn't it that as, as Dorian Gray becomes more conceited, his portrait starts to change? Is that... Well, it's we'll get there. Time. Remember, we're not um, we're not experts on this field, no. so we can we'll always pull that card out when <laughs> we're unsure something. It's an easy but, out, but it just makes me think of this question I had about Manfred: is that well, is he uncanny? Is he some kind of human monstrosity that is part human and part something? It almost I almost would. agree agree that he is such a I mean he does have his reasons and his rationalizations that you can connect to in some sort of way but there's also a villain side to him and his choices that is almost unreal yeah in in the rationalizations that you're referring to, I think at some point he he's listening to Theodore, and I think it's when he initially when Jerome initially reveals himself, he's listening to Theodore and he has this kind of moment of clarity where he realizes that he's being a jerk. <laughs> and and he realizes that he's being a tyrant, so he has the self-reflection. And then he's like, Wait, no, my loins. Right. <laughs> so I need someone to protect my legacy yeah yeah well in a certain way i mean it is very shakespearean it's very Macbeth. his own hubris is what ends up being his undoing absolutely i think that's a good point and then there's the castle and the ghosts and you know there are a few parts to it that reflect oh that that's similar like in hamlet too where mm-hmm. the ghost appears three times i think right and there's yeah. The Spectre. There's three major appearances of supernatural design in the Castle of Otranto. And I think that was supposed to mirror. I read that it was supposed to mirror Hamlet. I can see that. I definitely picked up on that a little bit. I was almost waiting for there to be more things. Some kind of a poisoning, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Maybe. Yeah. Well, so what happens then after... So there's the fight scene between Frederick and Theodore, and I, the whole the whole unfortunate kind of soap opera-y element of that fight is that it's all, fut- it's all futile because actually they had the same goal, which was to protect Isabella. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, a confusion because Frederick thought that Theodore was the abductor, and... Theodore thought that Frederick and was there another night or was it just Frederick? 
There were three knights. That came to the cave. No, only only one knight came. They had all spread out looking for it. Yeah, her. okay. And that's what I had thought. And it just so happens by providence that Frederick is the one who finds and comes across Isabella mm-hmm. and Theodore. So they go up and there's this discussion. And um, what is resolved? How does the discussion end? And we go to the next portion of the story. I think they all kind of spread out to their own room sort of thing. And Isabella basically says, you know, I love you, Matilda, and I'll let you have I'll let you have Theodore. And then Manfred kind of goes back and forth into the knight's room saying uh, basically trying to convince him to do this trade. And Father Jerome takes Theodore to the church. And I think that the kind of one of the things that I just jumped to in the next as one of the next major plot points is how Matilda realizes that she's probably going to get married away to this guy. And she admits to her mother that she will do what her mother says, do what her father says. She'll obey her parents and she resigns herself to her fate. But then she goes off into the church with Theodore and they have this, you know, beautiful moment of telling each other they love each other, basically. And at this time, um, Manfred has been having Bianca, the domestic, Isabella's domestic kind of spy And he somehow finds out that they're in the church and he thinks it's Isabella with Theodore. He doesn't think it's Matilda. And he goes in and he stabs Matilda and she is basically dying and everybody's just in a state and everyone's like freaking out. And what a crazy end to it all of basically... Everybody, it all getting like tied up in a little nice bow, even though people like aren't happy. And instead, what happens? She just gets killed by her own father. And so then he loses both of his children. Sins of the father revisited upon. Right. And um, then after that, I guess in the very end, Hippolyta and Manfred both uh join the church they become like nuns well he doesn't become a nun he yeah which is what jerome basically did right which is yeah that's true and then alfonso not alfonso but i guess that's a well then theodore reclaims his rightful place right but he was like looked like alfonso so i guess that's kind of like a slip of the tongue that makes sense mm-hmm. and then he marries isabella and basically says that I'll never love anyone like I love Matilda, but I guess you'll do. You'll do, because we can talk about how on, how awesome Matilda was together. Right. Because we both loved her so much. And it's just, I mean, it, it, it seriously, she dies and everything, Matilda dies and everything gets wrapped up in a page. Yeah. And I, I thought that, you know, this, I think I commented on this in the first episode, but it just seems like this isn't very good writing by modern standards because it's all expositional mostly it it seems kind of that way like in the first few pages and throughout the book there's a lot of this very dense 
explaining of different relations and who's related to whom. And maybe that's why it was a little, it's a little been a little hard for me to recall in this episode exactly who, how things are related because not that it was particularly hard to follow. It was just kind of dry and not as memorable, but it's my understanding that people ate this up back like, Oh, it was, yeah, it became incredibly popular, especially for women. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I just felt like it really, it built up all of these pieces and like you were saying, the connections and the relationships and, um, it got to this, the, to this pinnacle and this climax and then it just shot down, just tumbled down. Yeah. And the ending is, it just felt like it was so fast, um, that I almost was confused. Like, kind is, of, is it over? Kind of like our, our episodes, like in, in this one, all like we just, we just went through and that's how the story is, is that it's just, you know, there's a lot of build up and there's kind of a lot of plot in the middle. And then all of a sudden it just comes tumbling out and it's just and, over. Yeah. And I, it would have been maybe more interesting if, if there was an ending that ended up being like an ambiguous cliffhanger. Because you get the nice bow that everything's tied up in with this ending, but none of it's satisfying. No, definitely. I mean, the fact that I guess Isabella gets her man in the end could be satisfying if you were a big Isabella fan. Um, and Theodore gets his his castle and his his kingdom. And I guess Manfred kind of gets his just rewards in a way because he loses all of his heirs. His entire thing is to produce these heirs that are going to secure his kingdom for him. And he loses all of them. And then, I don't know, everyone just kind of ends up being a loser, losing in in this ending. And it's just... Yeah. And Theodore doesn't deserve, I don't think, to lose Matilda. Can you think of anything he did in the story that, I mean... No, I think that really it would have been nice. <laughs> I guess it goes into that whole dramatic and sad. Oh, that's not good. Well, words. it's a gothic story. It's I not guess, a romance. I guess yeah. that they don't get what they want and it's sort of just this moody, <laughs> terrible I, ending. Would you call it a tragedy? I mean, because I guess in a way. But it's a, it's a tragedy and comedy, and maybe it's a dramedy. That's kind of what Walpole was going for. Wadpole. Wadpole. That's wad. That's it. Seems like that's kind of what he was going for. Was this blending of the two kinds of romance that we talked about in the first? Yeah, and now that it's over and that we've kind of thought about that and sat with that, I can definitely see that. And I don't know. I even though there are definitely critiques and as. English majors, I think that you are taught to have critiques. You're taught to try to close read and then start to pick things apart. But if we were to kind of step back. It's called being a cynic, honey. Well, maybe I'm both. No, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's like that episode of South Park where it's like, oh, you're just a cynical asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's called being a cynical asshole. Well, uh, there goes our family friendly podcast. I'm not going to say it. It's okay. So if we're gonna, just going to step back and look at the story as a whole, 
I would recommend reading it. I enjoyed reading it, even though maybe it took me a couple pages to sort of get into the prose, just because I I feel like a lot of modern reading is easily digestible, just like our a lot of our media is. It's easy to watch. It's the story's simple and easy in and easy out. And it's not difficult. And so sometimes when I'm I choose to read something that's a little bit out of my norm. It takes me a page or two to just really, you know, kind of bury yourself into it and and really think about it a different way and challenge yourself a little bit with it. And so I'm excited for the next things that we're going to encounter. But I would say I would give this three and a half, four stars. Out of five. Okay, three and a half stars. I mean, I would agree. I would agree with that rating. I I did enjoy it, but I want to make a few comments on how it seemed like people were so much more literate and intelligent back then. And maybe not literate, because I'm sure literacy rates are much higher now than they were then. But of the people who are literate, it it seemed much more... Because at the time, this was considered trash fiction, in a way. Like... um. I don't know, like a Daniel Steele romance book or something. Because <laughs> something you'd get at the checkout at the grocery store. Yeah, and it's interesting because we would consider, in in a lot of people, especially in the the Cambridge Companion to Gothic Fiction that we're reading, it's just that critic literary critics have always waffled on Gothic fiction as a genre in of itself because they just. It, they want to call it literature, but at the same time, it was always dismissed as being trashy, you know, kind of in the way that Robert Block's Psycho was considered like a dime novel. Mm. But it's turned into when Hitchcock picked it up, it turned it into like a work of high art in a way. But one of the other critiques that I had of it was that the the characters, they don't change or progress at all. And, and they don't seem very complicated, like Matilda's The Damsel in Distress and Manfred is... He's a little complicated by the fact he's a little self-aware of his own tyranny. Hippolyta is just a doormat and she doesn't really change at all. And um, Isabel, who is Isabel? Theodore's the hero. Matilda, I would say that Isabella is the damsel in distress and Matilda is sort of a shadow or a foil of her in a way. Or maybe they're just two halves of the character not even full whole characters on on their own right perhaps yeah. i didn't even really see them as different i didn't picture them as different in my head and the bianca and um what do you call them the domestics mm-hmm. they're they're the comic relief and jerome is he kind of like the friar from romeo and juliet yeah and uh those interesting parallels there but yeah, I mean, the the characters didn't really, I don't know, they, they weren't very three-dimensional. There wasn't like a, a change that really occurred too much, except this Manfred meeting his own demise in a way. It, and I always kind of, I wanted to pose this question to you. Do you think that people like Walpole and authors consciously put symbology into their work or that they just write a story and in the end it's like, oh... Here's these uh, 
there's three drips of blood that came from the statue's nose, and that corresponds to what is it, William of Orange? I was reading in this uh, gradesaver.com. It was like uh, Spark Notes. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, to get some ideas. It's like, uh, oh, there's three drips of blood that come from the statue's nose. So that corresponds to William of Orange because it was well known that his son got bloody noses, right? Oh. And Walpole would have known this because he was a Whig in in uh, Parliament. Well, I mean, perhaps there are there would be a lot of symbology placed in. But, I mean, on the other hand, I think a lot of writing is unconscious for people not unconscious. A lot of writing is subconscious entering onto the page. Here, I'll read it. As he spoke those words, three drops of blood fell from the nose of Alfonso's statue. This is on page 89. It says, this is one of the most memorable supernatural moments of the text due to its subtlety and strangeness. In fact, Walpole did not devise this scene entirely from his own imagination. It refers to the serious nosebleeds of James II that precluded his ability to respond to the threat of invasion by William of Orange in 1688. This ended up redirecting the royal bloodline, and as critic Nick Gloom writes, quote, it is a reminder, therefore, of the historical destiny of the Whigs and the constitutional settlement of uh, Protestantism in England. As a Whig and a Protestant, Walpole knew that he was alluding to, he knew what he was alluding to with this unnerving scene. Oh, okay. Mm, mm, mm. Very, uh, people seemed so much more intelligent back then as I struggle to pronounce Mm -hmm. Protestantism. (laughs) I don't know that it seems though it's, it's a direct allusion to the bloodline in Manfred being very conscious of. I can see that more now that you've, you've read that section, for mm-hmm. sure. Here, here's another. Uh, we were just talking about Matilda. Matilda, resigning herself patiently to her fate, acknowledged with looks of grateful love the zeal of Theodore. And it says, Matilda is a classic Gothic literary character, the damsel in distress. Mm. She is young, lovely, and excessively pious and virtuous. She swoons over the portrait of Alfonso and believes her destiny connected to his. She wants to be in love and married to a noble and handsome man. She has a conscience and a heightened moral compass and is always aware of how she acts and is perceived. Here, after she has been accidentally stabbed to death by the father who never loved her, she, quote, patiently resigns herself to her fate. She has no harsh words or regrets, no anger or despair. In fact, she manages to console the men in her life. She tells Theodore that she loves him, and she tells her father that she forgives him before expiring. Traditional gender roles are thus as much a hallmark of the genre as ghosts and prophecies are. Because Walpole was definitely a feminist. (laughs) That was so sad. Her character. It is pretty sad. So sad. Do you connect with her character? I suppose. I don't know. Resigned to your fate in a marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, definitely there. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Well, are we going on four years now? Uh, is it only four? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess let's kind of talk about what we're going to talk about next. In our next episode, we'll be talking about The Signal Man, which is a classic tale by Charles Dickens. I'm so excited to talk about this one. I've never read it before. 
I never even really knew it existed. And Pat brought it up to me and said, we should, we should do this one. We should talk about this one. And I started reading it and I found it to be so cool. Just such a cool idea. So I'm really excited to talk about it and to kind of delve into it a little bit and see what Pat thinks about it too. Yeah. So our theme will be the signal man and premonitions of death. This is one we had planned uh, to launch the show with, but there was so much content in the castle of Otranto and so much to tie into just what Gothic horror is and setting that foundation for the rest of the podcast. Absolutely. I would beseech you all to subscribe to Unhallowed. You can do that on iTunes or any of your favorite podcatchers of choice. Just search Unhallowed. And you can also go to our website, visit us there at unhallowedpodcast.com. The best thing for you guys to do to help support the show would be to share it. Uh, Word of mouth recommendations is the most effective way. If you'd also go on and give us a rating and review on iTunes, that would really, really help us out. Otherwise, there is a support tab at unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash support where you can find uh, to support us in other ways, Patreon included. You could um, buy books that we've linked in the show notes page at unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash the episode number. And uh, you can get whatever we've been reading. You can get it there and follow us on Goodreads. We have a lot of social media badges, Instagram and Twitter. And so we're very much willing to connect with you. Send us an email at unhallowedpodcast at gmail.com. And so... That's about, you know, all the ways that you can connect with us. It's quite a mouthful. Oh, yeah. But uh, we have a presence on all those platforms. So go ahead. And this, the Signal Man is, is shorter, so it's not quite as much to read. And we've experimented a bit with the lengths, and we'll find that sweet spot. But we're really looking forward to bringing that to you, and we're really glad that you joined us for these episodes. Check us out in a week. We're gonna lo- This is the f- last pre-recorded show. And so the next show you hear will be after our launch of the podcast. So we're very excited. Absolutely. Thanks for being here again. Thanks for listening and for being patient with us while we find our stride, so to speak. And I hope to speak with you. See you next time.